If you had asked me, 13, what I wanted to be one day, I wouldn't have said it. Welcome to the Poetry Magazine podcast. I'm Lindsay Garbett, one of the magazine's co-editors. Both poets on today's show agree they feel braver as poets than they do as people. And it's this bravery that keeps drawing me back to their work. When we asked Leila Chati who she wished to speak with most, she chose one of the poets who gave her permission to be a poet herself, Sharon Olds. And not just to be a poet, but to write from a voice she thought wasn't possible. You'll hear why. So it's with great pleasure that I introduce the conversation you're about to hear. It features more poems than we've ever had on the Poetry Magazine podcast. Layla chose a selection of Sharon's poems and asks her to read them. They span 40 years, ranging from her first book, Satan Says, to her most recent book, Arias. Layla also reads from the December issue of Poetry and her latest collection, Deluge, a chronicle of illness, womanhood, and faith. I came across your your work when I was a, a high schooler, and I feel my whole development has happened through books of yours. Like, you know, I remember the first time that I read Satan Says, which was the first book I read, and how, you know, like where I was, how old I was, what I was thinking about. And when I was returning, so I've been reading all of your books in order, and um, <sighs> I guess like one of the first things I was thinking about was this most recent book, this beautiful, big operatic book <laughs> um, and the choice of of aria right which is the single voice right i think a uh, single <laughs> i didn't look it up and i didn't look up odes because i felt that what i was writing were odes and i didn't want to find out they weren't mm. and the <laughs> same with arias not cuz i felt above the terms but because i felt afraid that the official term might have too much of an effect on me. Hmm. I like the idea of odes, arias, ballads. Ballads is the one I'm finishing up now. I love that. So I don't know when I was, my first book didn't come out till I was 37. Took me a long time to write well enough for anyone to want to publish me. And I'd had a lot of education, but primarily not in poetry. But I began to feel that I didn't need to repress my love of poems from the past in order to represent Mm -hmm. my generation in a way. Not that I ever think that way, (laughs) but represent myself, I guess, as an ordinary human voice of a woman of my race and class and gender and all those things. Yeah, so I'll just say one more sentence, which is the reason ballads came into it was that I was invited to go to Emily Dickinson's house and write a poem in her bedroom. Oh, my God. (laughs) So as soon as I knew I was going to be going there, I began writing ballads again Mm. They were like, when I first read Emily Dickinson when I was 15, they were like the church hymns, except so, except they were great poems. Yeah, sorry, that's a very long answer. It was a very good answer. I think also it's interesting in Arias that it's a big book. <laughs> I mean that with such admiration. And I, I'm thinking about women's voices and like what women have been allowed to to say or do. And, the, you know, we come from this long tradition of voices, but n- less so female voices. And, uh, you know, thinking about not because women weren't speaking, but because, you know, th- there wasn't always a platform or, you know, given to women to do that speaking. And I'm interested in how your work has carved a place for women to continue that speaking, to carry on that chant. I think of Gwendolyn Brooks when I'm hearing you because of her extraordinary, I'm thinking of a ship that goes first into the waves on the open ocean, Mm -hmm. how she was 
and others like her so extraordinary in making a way and her being a woman was uh, so big a part of her writing and her mm-hmm. example yeah I, I most of what i've written has been against self-criticism as well as against imagined criticism mm-hmm. from outside it wasn't that i was so confident that i knew mm-hmm. i could uh, do something that would work it was just that my desire to try was stronger even stronger than my mm-hmm. fear well, something I've been thinking about has been women and silence. I was interested in how you persevered in the face of sometimes criticism or even fear from how your family or people you care for will respond. Because I do think that women in particular carry a lot of responsibility. You know, we're not supposed to write about family um, because that's breaking loyalty and the privacy that I think women are entrusted to carry. We're the secret carriers. And we're not supposed to write about ourselves um, because that's (laughs) selfish and that's self-indulgent. And we're not really (laughs) supposed to be writing at all, I guess. We should be caretaking. So just, yeah, how to push back or how you've written in the face of sometimes I think a world that would rather sometimes we be quiet. Yes, I knew that. And I, I knew that partly from church and partly from just the particular silence of of a strong conservative tradition in the Christian church that I was brought up in, and also socially that a lady was not supposed to, it's sort of like children should be seen and not heard, and certainly that was true of women. I think one answer is that I'm stubborn, (laughs) and I think I was also angry enough without knowing it But inside, way deep in my psyche, angry enough at the unfairness of so many things that I saw around me. Hmm. But also, it's much more fun to write something that feels new than to (laughs) try to fit into the traditions, the various literary traditions around one. I was an energetic little soul, and I found a lot of things funny, and I found it funny to <laughs> to go against the norm in some ways. I also am a second daughter. I think sometimes second daughters are more free to rebel than first daughters. I'm a first daughter. <laughs> are you? Oh, I'm very, I'm impressed with you. Well, my big sister is a first daughter also, and she's done a wonderful job both as an elder sister and as a woman. Hmm. In my family, it's as if we're born with a sense of fairness. Hmm. And before the family even starts teaching us what their idea of who life should be fair to, hmm. as if we have some animal dignity that we can feel when it's being Mm. gone against because it's painful. Mm -hmm. And then in the arts, we can, you know, the arts, the arts are a place to sing and dance (laughs) and write. So it's as Mm -hmm. if it's a little bit like a different world. Mm -hmm. So it's okay there. <laughs> I mean, I am braver as a poet than I am as a person. Certainly. So in thinking about bravery and this tradition, you know, talk about lineage, I would love to hear you, if you wouldn't mind, read the poem, The Language of the Brag. Yes, I would be happy to. This is a poem I could not write now. I believe I wrote it 40 years ago. So it was written in an atmosphere that's so different from where we are today. But for historic interest, I am happy to read it now. The Language of the Brag. I have wanted excellence in the knife throw I have wanted to use my exceptionally strong and accurate arms and my straight posture and quick electric muscles 
to achieve something at the center of a crowd, the blade piercing the bark deep, the haft slowly and heavily vibrating like the cock. I have wanted some epic use for my excellent body, some heroism, some American achievement beyond the ordinary for my extraordinary self, magnetic and tensile. I have stood by the sandlot and watched the boys play. I have wanted courage. I have thought about fire and the crossing of waterfalls. I have dragged around my belly big with cowardice and safety my stool black with iron pills, my huge breasts oozing mucus, my legs swelling, my hands swelling, my face swelling and darkening, my hair falling out, my inner sex stabbed again and again with terrible pain, like a knife I have lain down. I have lain down and sweated and shaken and passed blood and feces and water and slowly alone in the center of a circle, I have passed the new person out. And they have lifted the new person free of the act and wiped the new person free of that language of blood like praise all over the body. I have done what you wanted to do, Walt Whitman, Allen Ginsberg. I have done this thing, I and the other women, this exceptional act with the exceptional heroic body, this giving birth, this glistening verb, and I am putting my proud American boast right here with the others. Hmm. Now, what strikes me, of course, is that I had no idea what Walt Whitman and Allen Ginsberg wanted to do, <laughs> and I was also mentioning two gay men as if, I don't know, almost as if they wanted to be women, which mm. I just don't think was true at all for either one of them. <laughs> so it's an kind of, it's a little ignorant about mm. gender in that way and a little marked by when it was written 1978, when my IQ about gender was not very high. But I'm glad that, uh, except for that part, I'm glad that there's this poem from back then that puts the experience of one woman, one mother into the, uh, what do they call it? The canon. <laughs> the canon. Right. It mm -hmm. is. It is such, I'm, this poem for me in my development felt like such a part of the canon. Um, you know, I, I remember just thinking about what the body does and the or can do rather, and what it, you know, the, the female experience of what the body can do, can be canonized. I know when when writing my book, uh, Deluge, that I encountered some voices, not the majority, but some that thought that what I was writing about wasn't appropriate topic mm. for poetry and actually use in the poem language of blood like praise all over the body there's a, a cento at the end oh. I would not have been able to write this book without your work having come before it um, and so I really didn't know until I had read your work that you could write about menstruation and you could write about sex explicitly mm. I came from a very religious background in childhood also. Mm. And I was taught that, you know, I could not say these things and that there could be at the worst extreme of the spectrum, real harm coming from, from saying some of these things. Actually, would I be able to read you a poem from it? I, I'm thinking of a poem that this reminds me of, which is also about motherhood in, in my book, if, if that's... Oh, wonderful. Okay. <laughs> okay, let me grab that. I'm going to read the poem Mother. Mother, if you had asked me, 13, what I wanted to be one day, I wouldn't have said it. I wanted, for a long time, to be anything but myself, knew that a soon-to-be woman was the second worst thing in the world after a woman, full stop, and I was heading there fast. I could see it, my breasts rudely nudging into view, their snug caps like the knit caps of infants, rosy-colored as a tongue. And how terrifying, the thought of a mouth there rooting 
and what could be drawn from me that I didn't need? What else skulked in me unseen, stirring in secret vats with milk yet untapped, and blood, the strange new wellspring? I was just beginning to understand the possibilities, my body's elusive independent workings, machineries chugging away in dark chambers, not just left to, but simply their own devices, unknowable and sovereign. What I wanted always to be in control. And I knew this was impossible, just as I knew, even then, that to be a mother was to be the only permissible form of a woman, the begrudging exception to the rule of our worthlessness. So if you asked me again, 23, I'd tell you the worst thing you could be is not a woman, but barren. The industry shut down and the parts missing, malformed. And I'd tell you the shame of it, the feminine failure, its ache a reminder, at the center, the tumor, ballooning, like hope. Ah, thank you. Thank you. I love the way you read, too. It's a kind of shared listening, almost in a secret space, in a way. I like that that you don't call out. (laughs) I like the sense of containment. And, oh, I also love being surprised. And very often at the end of the line, when you write, I don't know what's coming next. (laughs) And then it seems just right when it comes. Yeah. Oh, poetry is a sacred space, isn't it? A space of prayer. I'm very interested in communicating in smallness sometimes. I think how I could I could be myself, my voice could be a quiet voice, but that 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 is also powerful. Maybe that's also something a little gendered to think that I needed to be much louder or something to be taken seriously that I can maybe be quiet. Yes, I I know that I wanted to read with a fairly even voice. I am by nature a kind of wild, dramatic conversationalist with my eyes rolling and my hands gesturing. But I wanted when I read a poem, I wanted very much not to read like so many actors used to read poems 30 years ago (laughs) with a tremendous amount of expression. I wanted it to sound more ordinary than that, Mm -hmm. and I didn't want it to sound as if I was trying too hard, because mostly I wanted to be accurate rather than wanting to make an effort to persuade. Mm -hmm. So it was the experience itself, and in women, then, often not spoken, not a work of art made of it, not valued. I wanted it to be like itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm really I'm interested in that and like the the person Sharonold versus the writer Sharonolds. I know in some of your <laughs> interviews you've talked about, you know, keeping some of your personal life you you know, you're like that's the poem is the poem and you you sort of have kept some things I think to yourself. You know, you'd said you're braver in your poems too and I think that's so interesting. Do you feel there's like a division between writer Sharon and life, Sharon, you know, 40 years have, has been increasingly Sharon Olds plus poet. Right. Now, in the beginning, there were so many more men writers than women writers. And, of course, also so many more white writers than people of color and so many more educated, comfortably off uh, people. And I would be asked questions when I was first being asked questions, which I was honored to be asked, but it was almost always, did that really happen? Mm. I wanted to talk about simile and metaphor, (laughs) and also both my parents were still alive then, so I didn't want to talk about real family. So I would say, I am sorry, it's a great question, it's very important, but I've taken a vow not to talk about my family. Mm. It's bad enough, I would say, to be in a family where someone in it is a family poet. (laughs) But it had as much to do with wanting to talk about 
all the very interesting things about art as if it weren't confessional, as mm -hmm. if it weren't personal. So I would call it apparently personal. <laughs> My poems are apparently personal. But in class, if someone would say, you know, do you think it's an important question whether or not your poems are autobiographical? I would say, well, out in the world, I've taken a vow not to talk about that. But with you, my fellow writers around the table, yeah, I can see how you would wonder. And yes, I'm a, I'm a very personal poet. I don't know how to make anything up. Similes, I don't make them up. They come through me when I'm focusing on something else. Hmm. It's really not something I have any control over. And it's the best thing about my heart. <laughs> you know, I can't call it up. Um, though I find that exercise and taking my vitamins and reading poems, other people's poems, is, is good for that. Hmm. But, yeah, I said I had taken a vow, I guess, which is the same as taking a vow. I thought I was just saying I had taken a vow so they would stop asking me that. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I've encountered that question before. You know, I think about, I think it's Anne Lamott who says if they didn't want to be written about, then they shouldn't have behaved badly or something along those lines, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is very bold. I don't know if I could always, you know, pull it off. But because, you know, I think about the balance between truth and tenderness I really actually, if I can ask you to read another poem, because now I'm thinking about um, about a poem in particular. Let me find it. Of second. course. And I might, while you're looking for it, I might say, my loyalty is more horizontal than vertical. Hmm. Could you say more about that? My loyalty towards siblings, partners, spouses hmm. is, you know, hmm. pretty good. My loyalty towards children is very important to mm -hmm. me. But my loyalty to parents, I, my loyalty is more to my fellow poets and the people who will go on living when people my age are all gone. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that often is people who have had some harmful experience, which has taken away their ability to believe in themselves and to do what they're born to do and to be happy enough, just happy enough. So that's another way of talking about what you just mentioned about loyalty to family. Could I ask you possibly to read two, As If My Mother First and then Ode of Broken Loyalty? Sure. Both those are sort of talking about some of the things we're talking about right now. Ah, this is from Arius. As if my mother. When I realize my mother is one of the women in history who has had the most poems written to her, it irks me as if she was conducting music or science when she was beating on me. What was wrong with my family, the generations of mothers beating the daughters, and what was wrong with the men? My mother nursing, her breast as representative of the female, the doe, the mammary goddess, has been sung. And her singing, her sharps and her flats, has been sung. When I was born, there weren't a lot of songs of women doing what my mother had done, given birth, nursed, bled, beaten one of her children as her mother had beaten one. Always the second daughter, the second one who had been supposed to be a son. When the farmer beats his wife, who beats the dog, who beats the cat, who beats the mouse? Who does the mouse beat? She does not beat her young. Maybe she beats the catskin drum. Four beats to a line and I'm done. I'm putting it here as morning comes, as the full day moon is going down into the mountain, deposited, dissolving in the light, mouth open, eyes open, unseeing. When our species began, language and tools and ritual burial began. I want to bury my mother, if possible, 
with both truth and honor. And here's the other one, Layla. This is Ode of Broken Loyalty. I want to go back to that day when it was broken in me, the loyalty to family, when I was cut free or cut myself free from the fully human and floated off like an astronaut untethered. I want to go back to the hour some cord in my mind was cut and I no longer was fed by the placenta of the nuclear or extended family but aborted myself or was aborted from that house. Once torn away, once shunned and shunning, it seemed there was little I could not write about. I felt as if my disenfranchisement had been undone. I was out on the wind, like a spinster alone in orgasm, like a witch. But I thought I was thinking and singing for everyone in every land and time. I was insane. Was I insane? I thought that someone driven out beyond the silence of normal reticence could speak for the normal. I don't want to go back to the hour I broke and ran the broken yoke and albumen shining in the toothed bowls of the shell. I love to say it might have been I who broke the contract, as if it were not obvious it was broken physically in me. I want to go back to when I found the paper and the ink, as if the matter of the earth wanted to chant and be chanted, as if one could think oneself loyal, being loyal to that chant. Well, good heavens, I really wanted to take on the subject, <laughs> knowing that I was peculiar hmm. in writing about family, as I did. And I can see from the poem, which I haven't read for years, <laughs> I and of course when you start writing a poem you don't know what's going to happen. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That's the magic I feel like that's part of why I find it fun. I mean sometimes it's very unnerving because sometimes you go in a direction that you you're like, "Oh, I didn't I didn't mean to let that out into the light or I didn't know that that was in there." <laughs> but it is part of the magic, right? It's like that discovery. Um, right. Now, here's something I notice now that we that we are becoming so much more aware of to what extent other people belong in our poems, to what extent we mm. can or may write accurately about other people. And so I wouldn't be able to write this now because I'd have to go off in some other direction The as if mm. someone who's beyond the silence of normal reticence could speak for the normal. What, of course, what does normal mean? But yeah. Whether I can speak, I'm finding in my writing of the last year, whether I can speak for someone who's very different from myself. Hmm. Except, of course, you know, I can, <laughs> Lucille Clifton used to say, some young poet in the audience asked her a question. He was a young white man. And Lucille's answer was, if you're going to write about me, write about me and you. Because then you'll know something about at least part of your poem. <laughs> She's so good. And it's so true. Something I love about you, Sharon, is your openness and curiosity extends beyond the poems. Like a lot of people, I think, would be sort of closed maybe to the ways that that they've grown or changed over, you know, their opinions or sort of knowledge that has accumulated as so many things. And, and that it's, I think, speeding up even in my short lifetime in terms of us knowing more about different ways of thinking that we maybe had been raised to think a certain way. And then now we're like, oh, actually, I haven't even considered <laughs> yeah. this other thing. It was, you know, I, I couldn't even see it. And now I see it. You know, that's the hard work. A lot of people want to look, look outside themselves and, and I guess, point out the errors of others but I think it's so hard to do 
to do that internal work to really look and say, oh, I had this idea and I was wrong. And then to write about it, right? I think that that is, that's such an act of courage. And it's the kind of poetry I want to be reading. Well, I noticed that I sometimes tended to write better if I was writing about something bad I had done. Oh, that's interesting. Rather than something bad that had been done to me. Now, not invariably, mm. but there was something fresh mm. about not, you know, I grew up in a martyr tradition thinking of the Christian martyrs and thinking of just all kinds of people who had suffered unfairly in the history of the world and also women suffering at the hands of men. And so I, it's, it's been work for me to try to recover from my, my affiliation with the romance of martyrdom, as it were. I'm not saying martyrdom itself is a romance at all, but I had some kind of false idealization of it that I'm working to come through. The fact that people can become addicted even to <laughs> martyrdom, I, I, I don't mean real like their head, I don't mean real martyrdom, but I just mean that mm. sense that they are more innocent than others. I miss that sense. <laughs> I really used to, you know, and, uh, but do I really miss it? No. Yeah, it keeps us in such a small, you know, you're just looking back at yourself and it, it can, you know, obscure the ways that we cause harm to others if we're only looking at the harm that's done to ourselves. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. I, I So I have a dear friend of mine who I told, you know, I was going to be talking to you, Sharon, and she was very excited because she also really loves your work. And I asked her, I was like, is there anything you want me to ask for you? Like, is there any question you have? <laughs> and she was wondering, because yeah. she's a mother, she has four children. And we talked about how we felt there was no right way to be a mother poet, that we had absorbed at some <sighs> point, this idea that either, you know, are you supposed to have the children first and then a career? Or do you have the career and then you take a hiatus for a second and have a child? Because she had done the first in terms of having children and I do not have children, but I'm interested in having children. Uh -huh. You've been a mother the entirety of your career. You, you released your books after having children. And some of your poems, especially, in, in, I was thinking in Satan Says, sort of refer to almost like a sense of guilt of splitting time. There's, you know, in the poem Late, there's these these lines where you say, I am tired of the children. I am tired of the laundry. I want to be great, um, <laughs> which I love. And then in yeah. Station, this image of, you, you know, you, speaker, yeah. you, um, coming in with these poems and the husband um, there and, and saying, we spent a long moment in the truth of our situation. The poem's heavy is poached game hanging from my hands. Um, and so if you have any like things or thoughts or advice particular to, to women sort of grappling with this, how do we do this both? You know, are we allowed to? Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So such an interesting question. Now, I don't know the answer. <laughs> I wanted to have children. Mm -hmm. I had a foolish faith that I would be a better parent than either of my parents had been. Mm. It wasn't that I sat around thinking about that. It just never occurred to me that I would have my own weaknesses and failings as a parent the way my parents had. But I do think I was right in that even though my kids would have challenges because of the kind of person I am, mm. and then also my being a family poet, but at the same time, it's something I wanted so much, and it's something I enjoyed so much. Mm -hmm. So I was a happy mother and a happy beginning poet. Mm -hmm. I was old to be a beginner, but, you know, I didn't worry about that. I knew perfectly well that there were poets my age who already had several books out, mm -hmm. but that wasn't my life. And I think I knew that I needed to experience parenting in order to see my parents more clearly mm -hmm. and see my own childhood more clearly. Mm -hmm. And I felt that worked. <laughs> Mainly it was just so fun. I, 
I am someone who's curious. And it was just so interesting what they would say. And, <laughs> and then the bond, the bond, which I have a few poems at the end of Arias. And I hadn't gotten to that point yet where I could try to write about what it is to love someone more than anyone else in the world. Mm. Or if they're two children, then love too. Yeah. And it happened to be that I was leading the life of a full-time mother, therefore my poems included it. Hmm. And then that was both unpleasant for some readers and editors, but a good idea, in my opinion, because there we are. There's yeah. more of us represented in terms of the experience of the author. Mm -hmm. Children's lives were just very interesting to me. I have great mm -hmm. respect for very close friends who found that all pretty boring. Yeah. Different That's lives. the way it, <laughs> it was for them. And I think having humor and joking with one's children about the tough life they have as, you know, cannon fodder <laughs> for the poet's pen <laughs> and apologizing to them if one feels that's appropriate also. It's it's confusing because they start out as these darling little puppies, and then very soon they start uh, showing uh, the, their individual selves. Oh, I was, it was, I was so happy then. Do you mind reading for us the poem "Little Things"? Speaking of little things, I'd be happy to. I think of this poem as sort of a, an early text for me, in, in terms of how paying attention is is a kind of praise. Yes, yes, and a kind of antidepressant also. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> Little things. After she's gone to camp, in the early evening, I clear my girl's breakfast dishes from the rosewood table and find a small crystallized pool of maple syrup, the grains standing there round in the night. I rub it with my fingertip as if I could read it, this raised dot of amber sugar. And this time, when I think of my father, I wonder why I think of my father, of the beautiful blood-red glass in his hand, or his black hair gleaming like a broken open coal. I think I learned to love the little things about him because of all the big things I could not love. No one could. It would be wrong to. So when I fix on this tiny image of resin or sweep together with the heel of my hand a pile of my son's sunburn peels like insect wings where I peeled his back the night before camp, I am doing something I learned early to do. I am paying attention to small beauties, whatever I have, as if it were our duty to find things to love, to bind ourselves to this world. Oh, what a treat to hear you read that, Sharon. I never thought, you know, gravity binds ourselves to this world. And we don't really need to look for things to love. There's all this stuff we love around us. So there's a little bit of a Puritan bossy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> quality at the end. But I remember this was an interesting poem to write. And people who both love and fear their parents, people with the kind of difficult parent that is let's say, a little bit more than ordinarily difficult parents. Mm -hmm. How to love them in poems as well as get it accurate about them. Yeah. Now, Layla, won't you read another poem? Of course. Um, yeah. Maybe I'll read, I have a poem, Hymen. It's a little intense. When I wrote it, it, it took me like a 13-hour continual stretch. It was a really painful mm. experience to write the poem. Um, I had to like keep getting up just to get water. And I, I sat on the floor at some points like, and I could not, you know, I felt like if I walked away, then the poem would leave me. So I, I felt like I had to stay with it until it was done. But after reading it, I realized, I was like, wait a second, this poem feels like I'm talking to someone. And I realized it's very much in conversation with your poem 
ode to the hymen and then also the second <laughs> there's like a yes. second ode to the hymen where you're sort yeah. of talking yeah. again about that right and so there are some there's some like images that are echoes of images that cool. you um, had used and sort of turning on them yeah so I would like to read this if that's okay hymen second blood I never knew you after the first scoured the bed for your blazoned blot and came up empty. Perhaps I was born without you, a box with no prize inside, a Sunday with no cherry on top, god of good girls, god of matrimony, mother state, which I consider a distant country with a discordant tongue. Did you speak with god and conclude I hadn't use for you? Once I was small as your kin, so small and for such a long time, Longer than I've lived, I fit inside my mother when she fit inside her mother, and so on and so forth, and further, a nest of matrons, me's and a beam, in which to be female is to be something like infinity, and was it determined then what kind of woman I would be? It seems I've always been frightened, little veil, of wedlock's lock clicking shut, the heritable procession of women whispering in the aisle of my pulse, don't do, don't do, don't. And I haven't done. This the grave I'm in, the grave I've dug with the spade of pleasure. But wanting seal of want, I did want it, did choose to commit my life's greatest transgression with the benevolent accomplice. And so in the here before, you could say I am among spared. What a mess this messlessness of you could have been in any number of lives my size, billowing specters of dresses and a line of possibility, lives in which I am the bridesmaid and you, maidenhead, the bride given away, where I am the acquired property and you the red ribbon severed in the threshold, I the purse and you the coin tendered. Perhaps no one ever told you precious emblem of innocence, simulacrum for honor, that some believe you the most important part of me, vital, like a heart a man gets the thrill of bursting where he can see it, that blood is owed to him. And that's the heart of it, isn't it? Of a woman, you, the only blood worth anything. Oh, wow. That's so beautiful. Oh, I feel that my um, IQ as a woman has gone up while hearing your poem. Oh. That I understand the relationship of the part and whole by the playful way, but it's quite serious play, that you sing that. It really was so striking for me to be like, wait, I feel a thread and I knew I wanted to write about the hymen. I think, you know, I'm Muslim and I was very afraid to write a book in which I admit that I've had sex. That was something that terrified me. And the book follows a period of illness in my early 20s. You know, I, I had these uterine tumors and they believed they were cancer and I was bleeding all the time. And so my brain being steeped as it was and faith, I guess, um, thought, oh, I've done something wrong. I've done something wrong. Yeah. And God is punishing me. Aww. And I thought, what I've done wrong must be sexual if this is like a gendered part of my body. I didn't know, though, what was sort of, okay, I knew the illness, but I didn't really understand where I was getting some of these messages. And to, to unearth that, I had to sort of grapple with my relationship to sex and, and the yeah, the hymen, the body, which I was only really able to access, I feel like, because of of your work. Like, oh my, what a blessing. <laughs> this has been so wonderful talking with you. And I'd really love before we end, if we could maybe read a poem about, you know, we've, we've talked about writing ourselves in our poems, and I'm interested in the idea of what happens with a poem where we're not in it. Cool, um, cool. I like that idea. So will you read one to us now? Sure. Um, I'm going to read one that's in this issue of Poetry Magazine, the December issue. It's called Echo, All She Lost, She Lost. All she lost, she lost at once. Her mouth could no longer offer 
at breakfast, apricot, acerbic syllables on the tongue. Acquiesce was gone, allure and ardent. Ache refused to be named, but remained a thorn in her breast. Breast, she couldn't say it, couldn't say come closer, couldn't say cock or covet, blessing or blue. Losing beauty didn't so much upset her. It was a word which lessened the thing itself. Desire was never enough for her, despair too enormous for language, but she rather missed endure, missed earnest and empty, eggs and exaltation. Feelings she discovered were awful if solely felt. Unspoken, they were egregiously real. For reasons unknown to her, she wished very much, very often, to say field. She just wanted to to fill again her mouth with grasses and excessive sadness. Oh, how she loved gratitude. She would say it over and over until her heart believed her. It was her only prayer. She regretted never uttering ichor when she had the chance. Intimacy was underutilized, idle, inkling, bloom. Though in truth, some things were always ineffable, and she relieved to be relieved of the duty of trying. Just having the basics would have sufficed. She would have gladly relinquished jest and jejune and jacaranda to keep kindness and kinky and kin, lemon and lace and love, perhaps this what she longed for most, as unbearable as it was to be so monstrously human. Before she thought maybe she was needless, obdurate as a stone or the wind which touched everything with a pernicious detachment. Please was the first word she attempted in the meadow, trembling as the dark stayed terribly quiet. She never heard such quiet. It was a quiet longer than death. When above her at last a storm ruptured, she repeated keenly its howl, awash with rage. Oh, she was certain, if she could recover suffering, she'd refuse to say anything else for all of her days. Her mouth mouthed uselessly, salt, mouth sate, mouth soft. She waited in the shade for a stranger to voice what she knew to be urgently true. She resented both the voice and the waiting, and the birds, their unavailing refrains, undeserving of their instruments and uncharitably vociferous at dawn, frogs their lubricious clamor, katydids' violent, ubiquitous chorus. It was an error not to appreciate umbrage fully, nor vex, nor volition. She never had an occasion for virtue, but wished return to her vainglory and vesper, wished for waffle and wallop and wasp. Why not? She wanted want, wanted wrong. It exhausted her, her xenogenic lexus, her inexpressible grief. What would she give to whisper yellow just once to what was, petals and morning yawning brightly before her, to sigh, yes, to say, you, oh, to say you. But her maw hung open, feudal zero, destitute. Ooh, I'm in a trance. <laughs> Oh, that's a fun poem. I can't wait to read it again on the page. Thank you. Thank you. Full of riches. Well, this poem is not so beautiful. (gasps) But here it is. Here it is. Now, this is written about 20 years after I wrote the poem, Take the Eye Out, Mm. which I'd been told to do with my poems by many critics. So here is my poem without me in it. My poem without me in it, would it be like my room when I had returned to it after my mother was done with me? Under my bed, only the outer space balls of dust, only the asteroids of hair, no bent leg spider drawstring purse, no fly, no eye. My poem without me in it, would it be like her house before I was granted the right to close my door? It had been one hive, one queen, five times my size, her long stomach lolling like a tucker bag. My poem without me, like the mahogany bookcase with its spiral pillars without a book by a woman in it. My poem without a simile in it. My poem like my head as a child when I learned how not to have a thought in it in case it were a thought one would burn for. 
my poem without this ordinary female in it, like the body politic of a teenage woman without her special blood on it. This old girl's poem without a girl in it. I have been a child without a soul. The poem is a veil of soul making. God, thank you, Sharon. Oh, I love that. I'm so glad for you and your poems and every poem in which you do or do not appear. (laughs) And I you, my dear. What a joyful day. A big thanks to Sharon Olds and Layla Chati. Chati was born in 1990 in Oakland, California. A Tunisian-American dual citizen, she has lived in the United States, Tunisia, and Southern France. Her debut poetry collection, Deluge, was published by Copper Canyon Press earlier this year. You can read Echo, All She Lost, She Lost, in the December 2020 issue of Poetry, or online at poetrymagazine.org. Sharon Olds has received several prestigious awards, including the Pulitzer Prize and National Book Critics Circle Award. Born in 1942 in San Francisco, Olds grew up in Berkeley, California, where she was raised, as she puts it, as a hellfire Calvinist. The poems you heard today were from the book Satan Says, published by University of Pittsburgh Press in 1980, The Gold Cell, published in 1987, Odes, published in 2016, and Arias, published in 2019, all from Knopf. The Poetry Magazine podcast is produced by Rachel James. The music in this episode came from Irreversible Entanglements, Reservoir, Rob Mazurik, and Alabaster de Plume. All these songs were released by the Chicago-born record label International Anthem. We'd love to know what you think of the new season, You can get in touch with us a number of ways. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, which is great because it helps other people find the show. You can also email us at podcast at poetryfoundation.org. Are you thinking of buying someone a book for the holidays? Have you considered giving them one book every month for an entire year? We've got you covered. For a limited time, buy one subscription to Poetry Magazine and gift one free. That's two subscriptions for the price of one. Give the gift of poetry today. Go to poetrymagazine.org slash podcast holiday. That's poetrymagazine.org slash podcast holiday. Okay, that's it. Until next time, be well, stay safe, and thanks for listening.